The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Welcome to Life Matters. I'm your host, Brendan O'Connell. Well, uh, the pro-life and the pro-abortion communities have been uh, waiting eagerly, and now it's happened. The oral arguments have occurred on December 1st, 2021, in the case of Dobbs versus the Jackson's Women Health Organization. And we have with us someone today who's followed it very closely. Her name is Carolyn McDonald. She's an attorney. Uh, she serves as staff counsel at Americans United for Life, and she focuses on amicus briefs, federal legislative affairs, and the international advocacy for human right to life. Well, welcome, Carolyn McDonald. Thank you, Brendan. It's really a pleasure to be here. Carolyn, what, uh, what is this case, Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health, all about? Can you, can you tell us what it's all about and why it made its way up to the Supreme Court? U.S. Supreme Court. Of course. So to understand Dobbs, we really have to backtrack to about 50 years ago. In 1973, the Supreme Court first recognized that a woman had the right to kill her unborn child in Roe versus Wade. And since then, the courts have been playing with this idea of when is it permissible for the woman to actually exert this supposed abortion right? And then in what circumstances can states regulate to, to support maternal health and also to ensure the dignity of the unborn children? So in 1992, we had Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, as the, the states can regulate on behalf of unborn life, um, in, in post-viability. However, pre-viability, they can only regulate to support maternal health. However, it can't pose an undue burden. Now, in Dobbs, we're re-examining what is exactly an undue burden. And, and what is undue burden? Are we talking about uh, a, a woman won't be able to pursue her professional career? She's in college, she gets pregnant. Uh, what do they mean by undue burden? Yes, so when we're saying an undue burden, we're first looking at pre-viability. Viability is approximately 24 weeks, or it's when the baby can live outside its mother's womb on his own. And so we're looking at an undue burden, and we're trying to say that these statutes and laws cannot be an undue burden on a woman. And that means they can't interfere with, like, for example, her ability to pursue a career, to, to participate socially and economically in society. Now, there's been a lot of argument about what exactly is an undue burden, and the courts have been in a disarray over this since 1992, when the Supreme Court originally decided Casey. And right now, we're looking at this issue again. In Dobbs, the court is asking like, whether or not we need this arbitrary viability line, or can states actually regulate at all stages of a pregnancy to support preborn life? 
And uh, you know, I find the assumption that if if you get pregnant, you can't have, you can't become an attorney, you can't have a successful career, you can't have a family, or uh, whatever. I, I just find the assumption wrong. Do others feel that way? Well, yes, of course. Um, first of all, I have to say as a young woman myself, I find it demeaning. We, we're saying that only because 50 years ago we had seven men on the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade decide that women could obtain an abortion. It's only because of that reason that I as a young woman is, am going to be able to participate and succeed in society. Frankly, it's insulting. What, was but it, second, was what it, we actually see is the socioeconomic data does not support this idea. Since 1990, in the United States, abortion has actually declined in absolute numbers, rates, and ratios. Yet at the same time since 1990 to the present day, women have had greater participation in the labor force, in school. There are now more women in law school and med school than there are men. And we can see more women who have, um, are owning their own businesses. So this idea that women need abortion to succeed in society is quite simply false. They would say, well, because they've had abortion, they could they could now go to law school or they could go to medical school or uh, start a business. Um, that That's a point of contention. I just, uh, well, it's <laughs> why, why they're hearing this case in one regard. And uh, do you, can uh, the undue burden uh, viability line, uh, what... Uh, so they're saying, so viability is, so people understand out there, is at 20, let's say 24 weeks, I've seen it at even 23, um, which, you know, 50 years ago when Roe versus Wade was, came down roughly, uh, you know, we didn't have all the technology and everything else that we have today. And um, I, uh, well, <laughs> I, I have to, um, I'm, Perplexed. I mean, the, the most most abortions happen in that ten to fourteen week period, so that's way before quote unquote viability. And Dobbs is at fifteen weeks. What what do you make of this? Because uh, we're really talking about far fewer abortions after the fifteen week period. Yes, I think you make an excellent point, first of all, about viability, is it's a moving target. It's constantly changing as we have advancements in medicine, and especially in neonatal medicine. And then second, I think Chief Justice Roberts, during oral argument, summed it up quite succinctly, is that the United States is extreme on the abortion issue. We're among one of seven countries that allow abortion at this later stage. And in fact, it ranks us with other countries, such as China and North Korea. And that, quite simply, is not a place where we want to be on the international level. Well, if Dobbs were to pass, would that, um, uh, and I've had on the lady uh, uh, Doe versus Bolton, uh, Sandra Kano, I've had her on this show. Um, would that, and she was really upset with, uh, you know, she was used kind of as a, uh, as someone who had just fallen off the turnip truck, which you may have. But she was really misrepresented and uh, misused, and she really and she tried to overturn uh, Doe versus Bolton, which says you can have an abortion up till birth, and that's if your grandmother doesn't like that you're pregnant and for any reason whatsoever. And I know Sandra Kano was very upset; uh, she was uh, Doe in this case. Uh, would Dobbs eliminate uh, Doe versus Bolton? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. 
So Doe versus Bolton was supposed to be the companion case, and the Supreme Court said it was the companion case to Roe versus Wade. It was also decided in 1973. And Doe versus Bolton is an issue because it created a medical exception for all stages of pregnancy. And it created this exception that was so large, it could virtually encompass any type of mental or health issue that women could essentially receive an abortion at any stage. And now let's go going into your second question is what happens like if if Dobbs overturns Roe is in that instance, what we'll actually see is that the federal constitution will not prohibit abortion. Rather, it's going to return the issue to the states. We can once again regulate abortion at the state level. So some states may actually allow abortion, but other states can prohibit abortion. We can once again actually pass more health and safety laws to support maternal health, and we can pass laws that really uphold the dignity of the unborn child. Mm -hmm. That's often not talked about, the dignity of the unborn child. And uh, now let's talk about uh, December 1st. These oral arguments to this case were heard at the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you tell us uh, what each of these chief justices were questioning, what kind of queries they had regarding both the Solicitor General of Mississippi and then the person representing um, Jackson Women's Health Organization? Of course. So what we saw here is there was an emphasis upon stare decisis. That was one of the main issues in this case. And that's and Latin started- for what? I took Latin myself, but uh, what is that uh, Latin for, stare decisis? Yes, to, to let the case or things stand as is. So once the Supreme Court decides a case is that they don't want to overturn it unless they have a really strong, compelling reason to do so. So in this instance, what the courts and many of the the justices were concerned with is we've had Roe v. Wade for nearly 50 years in the in the United States. Is why are we going to overturn it now? And now we saw Mississippi who made such a strong, compelling argument that they said Roe was wrongly decided on the day it was decided in 1973. And it remains wrongly decided up until this day. And it's time to uh, to overturn that. And what we saw also were some of the other justices such as Justice Kavanaugh made a point that the Supreme Court in its history has overturned numerous cases. And we also saw a very compelling argument by Justice Alito who actually compared this instance to Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson was decided in the late 1800s. It's the case that we got that egregiously wrong decision saying that separate but equal can be the law. So in that case, it said that on the basis of race, you can segregate individuals. You can make them go into a separate train car, use a separate water fountain and go to a separate school. And now that was the law of the land for 58 years. And Justice Alito pointed out that this was egregiously wrong and it had been so for 58 years while it was the law of the land. Yet there was still social reliance upon this. In fact, the South built up a whole economy upon this idea of separate but equal. And nevertheless, even though there there was this strong social reliance, the Supreme Court ultimately overturned that. And we're seeing the same kind of issue here with Roe versus Wade, is we have the abortion clinic who is arguing that women have a social reliance upon abortion. They can't succeed economically or socially unless they can access an abortion. But at the same time, we're seeing the socioeconomic data says that's not true. And we have a compelling reason to overturn it, is Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, and it's unworkable in the courts. One thing that uh, I've interviewed many women on this show and men 
who talk about uh, have, having had abortion, they, they end up having high alcohol rates, high suicide rates. I think that women are six, six times more likely to have a suicide if they've had an abortion. And so the emotional uh, and psychological aspects of these arguments aren't necessarily broached, at least I don't see them broached on the Supreme Court level from what I read recently. Uh, wh what do you think about that? I think it really places the issue of pregnancy resource centers at the forefront is that it's unfortunate that in society that we have women who are pregnant and feel like they have no social or family support. So I would just urge anybody who's watching and other individuals in the United States is that we need to support these young women by supporting our local pregnancy resource centers, by donating our time and also donating goods to the pregnancy resource centers who can then act as the support to women so that they realize that there is a real alternative to abortion and that they can actually welcome their child in life. I know that those pregnancy health centers have grown like topsy over the last 30 or 40 years. So. That's a good thing. Well, let's go on. What do some of the other U.S. Supreme Court justices think? Uh, for instance, uh, Gorsuch or um, Kagan, uh, the other side, uh, Breyer's on the other side. What, what, what are their arguments? Yeah, so if we're looking at the other side, we have Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. And one of the things they were concerned about is this idea of the political perception of the United States Supreme Court. And this is a, a very liberal viewpoint to take, um, is that they're concerned upon the public's perception and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court if they essentially throw out Roe v. Wade after 50 years. And frankly, some of the other justices weren't buying this idea, is that they said that many cases have been overturned. And also, the United States Supreme Court is part of an independent branch of government. It's part of the judiciary. It doesn't have, it's have the same issue of political power in answering to the people as the other two political branches have. Mm -hmm. I know having gone to Georgetown University and having read the Washington Post with its liberal bent, uh, they tend to, in the metro section or throughout their paper nowadays, they work on uh, judges saying, will that judge grow in office, meaning will he capitulate to the liberal side? Uh, because we've had this hearing on December 1st, and we probably won't get the decision till the last week of June when they break for their summer recess of July, August, and September, uh, they're going to be uh, working overtime, I think, <laughs> the Washington Post uh, trying to convert uh, people like Roberts, who's, who's been uh, easy, I mean, he's, he's been a disappointment to a lot of conservatives out there uh, because he has flipped, particularly on Obamacare, uh, he, where he wrote an opinion, then he changed his opinion. Uh, and um, do you see that happening in this instance? I mean, I think it's one of those instances that only time will tell. But with that said, Chief Justice Roberts asked some very compelling questions. Like I mentioned earlier, he, he noted that the, or that the United States is one of seven countries to have such an extremist view on abortion. And we're right up there with China and also North Korea. He also discussed stare decisis and he questioned whether Roe v. Wade was, have we only determined it's wrong after the fact, you know, now that it's been 15 years, or was it wrong like when it was decided in 1973? He posed these questions to Mississippi and also to the abortion clinic. And so from my interpretation of that, it seems that he's at least open to the idea of considering Roe versus Wade. 
Now, what about the new uh, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett? Uh, what, what, is she, what did she bring up? What issues did she talk about? No, she actually was absolutely amazing in this oral argument. Um, as many people know, she's an adopted mother herself, and she actually delved into the ideas of adoption and parenting. So she asked questions about safe haven laws. Uh -huh. A safe haven law, which is also known as a baby Moses law, says that for usually the first few days after you give birth to an infant, is that you can relinquish them and relinquish your parental rights and duties by giving the infant up to either a hospital or certain public authorities. So Justice Barrett was really asking the abortion clinic is what is your legal interest here? Is it only the idea that you don't wanna to have to carry this pregnancy to term? Or is it the, actually the idea of parenting? Because in Justice Barrett's viewpoint is that there is no legal interest in abortion because you don't want to be a parent is that you can just simply give up your child after they're born because there are many adoption options available and these options especially through safe haven laws have only emerged in full force in the past 20 years so i i know that now in the united states we have baby safe haven laws in all 50 states so theoretically uh the pressure that a a, a young woman or teenager female teenager feels from both the pregnancy growing inside her and then from exogenous forces like their boyfriend, their husband, their mother, their father, uh, pressuring them also, that they can just uh, go full term with the baby and, and give up the baby for adoption or place the baby for adoption. I think in Massachusetts here we have firehouses that, um, that will take uh, babies that are born and, and the mother doesn't uh, want to raise the child. Can, can I ask you, how has, uh, how has the abortion issue distorted legal history and, and the federalism involved with uh, this particular case? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have to look at the legal history of the 14th Amendment. So in the 14th Amendment, it was passed right after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period. And from the 14th Amendment, we get the Due Process Clause. It says that any person cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. Now, the court subsequently determined that this due process right, we, well, they could find a, a privacy right. And in 1973, they determined that this privacy right was broad enough to then extrapolate into an abortion right. So you're seeing multiple layers of extrapolation. But what we're seeing here then is, um, and I'm sorry, could you repeat your question and maybe cut well, that? I, I blanked for a second. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering uh, how, what, like with the 14th Amendment, uh, how has that been trampled um, uh, by the uh, Roe v. Wade and, and the uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Eastern Pennsylvania? Yes. So, so we had the 14th Amendment. And what, what we see then is this distortion, distorted legal history, because prior to the passage of the 14th Amendment, most states actually banned abortions with certain exceptions. Now, if we fast forward to the 1960s and early 1970s, we saw a movement for some gradual but small reform in abortion. But what we see in the Supreme Court in 1973 is that they had this judicial activist approach. They tore the issue completely from the states, from the democratic process, and decided that abortion was a constitutional issue. And 
in the in Roe versus Wade, it was seven men on the Supreme Court who decided that a woman has the right to kill her unborn child. And what this meant is that overnight, the Supreme Court made the federal judiciary essentially this medical advisory board on abortion is it took the issue from the states and placed it within the federal judiciary. Mm -hmm. And didn't it wipe out all uh, pretty much all of the uh, state laws uh, to, you know, under uh, prohibiting elective abortion? Uh, that's my, you know, basically uh, my understanding. Well, now, uh, what is the uh, what is the importance of filing amicus briefs, and why is it important? For instance, I see the pro-life side filed eighty uh, amicus briefs, and um, and the other side uh, filed fifty. What what is an amicus brief, and then what what kinds of things were brought up in these amicus briefs? You don't want to be repetitive all the time with <laughs> amicus briefs, so there must have been a lot of different. Uh, points of view with, uh, for instance, the pro-life side. Of course. So an amicus brief translates to a friend of the court brief. What it means is that like you as an outside organization or individual have such a stake in this case that you want to essentially tell the courts why a party should win. So what we saw is that there are more than 80 pro-life amicus briefs filed in this case. And they had many arguments. At Americans United for Life, we actually filed two briefs, one on behalf of over 200 members of Congress and one on behalf of ourselves. And we talked about how Casey's undue burden standard is just unworkable. It has been unworkable since the court first came up with it in 1992. And we're also discussing how now this is the case then that like the court should just discard this viability line is that it's inhibiting states from being able to regulate abortion by promoting maternal health and also promoting the dignity of unborn children. We also saw in other amicus briefs some excellent points. For example, Professor Della Pena discussed the legal history of abortion and how this case law since Roe v. Wade to the present day in the Supreme Court has distorted this legal history by trying to manufacture and make up this right to abortion, when in fact the legal history shows that there has never been this right to an abortion. And we also see other briefs, for example, from international scholars saying that international law does not support this right to abortion, is that international law is more conservative than us on the abortion issue, and that the United States is an extremist on abortion. Hmm. Now, were you in the courtroom or were you outside? I know there were some groups I think were going to be outside. What, what was the situation outside the U.S. Supreme Court on the day, on December 1st, uh, the day they heard oral arguments for uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization? Of course. So the courtroom was closed to the public, unfortunately, so I did not attend in person. But I was able to go to the rally on the courthouse steps, and it was inspiring. We had such a great turnout. The Washington Post actually reported that the pro-lifers outnumbered pro-choice individuals by three to four to one. It was, a, it was wonderful. And I loved talking with people there because you had people from across the country unifying in the pro-life movement to come and advocate before the Supreme Court on the courthouse steps. And so what we had were four hours of pro-life speakers talking and inspiring us. And we saw people who were from every faith background. We had secular individuals and also atheists there. And it also was a bipartisan issue. We, of course, had conservatives who were pro-life, but we also saw a great turnout from the Democrats for life there on the courthouse steps. Now, uh, in uh, every Sunday, we handicap football games here, giving our predictions. 
What would be your prediction of possible um, results or decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court? You know, most likely, um, maybe in, not likely, or what, what do you, what's your sense of the whole thing? Of course. I am extremely optimistic. I mean, at the very least, it seems like the Supreme Court is poised to discard this arbitrary viability line that says a state can't try to regulate abortion and promote human dignity at, at the moment of conception. So at the very least, I think the Supreme Court might overturn that, that viability line. But I'm also very hopeful because as the parties discussed during oral argument, this seems like a zero sum game. It's all or nothing. The court either must overturn Roe entirely, as Mississippi argues, or reaffirm it in its entirety, as the abortion clinic is, clinic is arguing. And I think that it, there is actually now a good shot that the Supreme Court might overturn Roe versus Wade in this case. So you think in the entirety that it may occur? Yes, that's right. Well, uh, reading the tea leaves uh, is uh, American pastime, and uh, we appreciate your thoughts on this whole thing. and. Uh, and we hope that folks will, I, can they contact their legislature? What can people do between now and when the decision comes out, probably the last week of June? Uh, what, what can people do to, to help promote our side, the pro-life side? Of course. Well, like you said, your legislator, both federally and statewide, this especially is the time for states to pass pro-life legislation. And we have that upcoming as the January 2022 session opens up. I would also say pro-pregnancy resource centers. They are a very real strong alternative to abortion and they're helping women who feel like they have no social support and have no one to turn to. That is one of the ways we can go on the front lines and try to stop abortion. Mm -hmm. And hopefully influence uh, judges who, uh, who tend to uh, get weak kneed or capitulate <laughs> uh, when they, uh, when they see, you know, social reaction out there. Uh, for instance, newspapers and uh, the, left, the leftist media that we have uh, nationally. Well, Carol McDonald, I want to thank you very much for your insights on this uh, Dobbs uh, case and uh, Dobbs versus Jackson case. And, and we hope that we'll be following it closely over the next uh, six months or so. And uh, we thank you very much for taking time in your busy day. And uh, folks, we hope you found today's show to be unique, informative, content-rich, truthful, and thought-provoking. Thanks for watching and listening. I'm Brendan O'Connell, your friend for life. The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass. 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.